0: Welcome to another edition of the American Bankruptcy Institute Podcasts, which feature conversations with prominent figures in the bankruptcy world about topics of interest to our members. I am Laura Bartell, professor of law at Wayne State University Law School and current resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am pleased to welcome as my guests today, Professor Catherine Porter and Professor Deborah Thorne to discuss their recent jointly authored legal studies research paper, on debtors assessments of bankruptcy financial education. Professor Porter is a professor of law at the University of Iowa College of Law and is currently a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. She is a principal investigator in the Consumer Bankruptcy Project and a fellow of the Bankruptcy Data Project at Harvard Law School. Professor Thorne is an associate professor and Eric Wagner Endowed Teaching Professor of Sociology at Ohio University. She is a former postdoctoral fellow and Project Director of the Consumer Bankruptcy Project at Harvard University. Thank you both for joining me today. Professor Thorne, this research paper is based on data collected in the consumer ban- bank- bankruptcy projects. Could you tell us a little bit about those projects?
1: Yeah, the Consumer Bankruptcy Project, um, has, as, as a project, has been going on since about the early 1980s. Um, collecting data um, in, I believe, 81-91-2001, and then the paper that um, Professor Porter and I have written uh, is based off the 2007 da- 7 data collection. Um, that was the first natu- nationally representative sample that was collected uh, for the consumer bankruptcy project. So we had a random sample of people who had filed uh, consumer bankruptcy in the early parts of 2007. And um, had a great, uh, pushing about 50%, about 45 to 50% response rate. And that's where our data came from. So the Consumer Bankruptcy Project has been around a long time.
0: Professor Porter, your your paper is on debtors' assessments of bankruptcy financial education. What exactly do you mean by bankruptcy financial education?
2: The new bankruptcy law that was passed in 2005, the Bankruptcy Abuse and Consumer Prevention Act, imposed a requirement that debtors complete a mandatory um, financial management course in order to be eligible for a discharge of their debt. We studied debtors' experiences in taking those courses. And it's important to remember that this is the, the education that comes after the filing of the bankruptcy, not the mandatory credit counseling that comes before a debtor's eligible to file bankruptcy. So we did not study the the credit counseling that's a requirement for eligibility. We studied instead the financial education that's your ticket out of bankruptcy, that's your ticket to getting a discharge.
0: And one of the objectives of your research was to compare the attitudes towards this bankruptcy financial education of the consumer debtor's In 2001, who did not have to take a mandatory course in order to get a discharge, with those who uh, were a part of the 2007 inquiry where they actually had to take a financial education course to get a discharge. Was there a difference in attitude between those two groups?
1: Um, This is Professor Thorne. I'll answer that. There absolutely was. Now, in 2001, you know, like you said, they did not have to take that class. So this was only hypothetical. It was their speculation that did they think the class would or would not have helped them. Um, And respondents in 2001, 45%, um, did not believe it would help them. They said they didn't think this financial management course would have made a difference um, in their need to file for bankruptcy. By 2007... Um, 67%, so two-thirds, um, if it increased when they actually had to go through it, um, 67% said, no, we do not believe that this class um, would have helped us avoid bankruptcy. So there was a significant increase. But again, I mean, in the first group, they hadn't been through it. It was only speculative on their part. And by 2007, they had actually gone through the class. And, um, you know, the, the earlier respondents were, were hopeful. Clearly, hopeful that it would have
2: helped them. And one of the things that Dr. Thorne and I have, have talked about is that it may be that when we ask people hypothetically, do you think a debt management course would have helped you avoid bankruptcy, they envisioned a kind of course or a kind of help that was more expensive or had a different focus than what we actually see embedded in the mandatory financial bankruptcy curriculum. So, part of the gap may be that that they thought this course would be something dif- different than what it's turned out to actually um, be in reality.
1: Mm-hmm. So, for example, I mean, we know you know the, the leading reasons people file are they've lost their job, they've had a decline in income, or they have medical problems. And to kind of add on to what Katie was saying, you know, maybe the earlier respondents were were hoping that or expecting that the that a financial education course would potentially address those issues directly. Maybe that's what they had in mind, when in fact, possibly what they found out, the the group in 2007, that's not what the course was about.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, another goal of your research was to assess whether a debtor's attitudes towards this financial education differed Based on certain demographic factors such as age and sex and race, educational attainment, familiarity with household finances, what did you find in that respect?
2: I think um, the findings we found there are really important. We found um, that education, race um, and familiarity age and familiarity with family finances all seem to make a difference in how people um, assess the value of the financial education course that they completed. We did not find a significant difference by sex. That is, men and women seem to have equal, equally likely to have assessed this course as useful or not useful. But for, we, found that we found racial differences, we found educational differences, we found age differences, and we found differences based on people's familiarity with their household
1: finances.
0: What differences did you, did you find?
1: I'll go ahead and address that. Um, we found that um, people who were very familiar with the household finances, essentially this is the person who pays the bills and who's dealing with the debt collectors, um, they were uh, less enthusiastic about the benefits of the class. Um, People in their middle years, um, middle ages, were less enthusiastic about the benefits of the class. So what that means is younger people... um, under 25, and older people, 65 and over, were more enthusiastic about the benefits of the class. Um, uh, folks with college degrees were not uh, uh, happy with with the class. They, they didn't feel it benefited them or would have helped them prevent uh, or avoid bankruptcy. And um, we found that uh, minority respondents were more enthusiastic about the potential um of the
2: class to help them avoid bankruptcy. And Mrs. Foster Porter, one of the stories um that we think, you know, one of the implications that we think comes out of that when you when you put all of those findings together is that what we're seeing is people who have had more experience in the credit economy or more experience with their own family's finances are less likely to see value to the education. So the person in the um, household who was doing the bill paying, who was dealing with the debt collector, who had the most deep knowledge of what was wrong with their household finances, were less likely to think that education could have fixed it. Um, younger people and older people have had um, either less or different exposure to some of the financial products and to some of the kinds of financial decisions that are important for families to make in today's economy, younger and older people were more likely to say that they valued um, the financial education. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a learning story. Some people have learned much of this the hard way through their experience in the economy, through their experience in being in financial distress, whereas other people... um, Have had fewer opportunities for financial education, fewer opportunities for learning, and seemed more optimistic about the benefits of the bankruptcy financial education course.
0: A couple of those findings struck me. I don't know if any of them surprised you, but for example, uh, there is a perhaps myth that household finances are generally handled by the husband rather than the wife, and yet there was no marked disparity between the attitudes of women and men. And one would have thought that if the men were more familiar with household finances, that they would be less positive about this uh, financial education than women. Similarly, I would have thought that uh, older people would have had bankruptcies that were more likely to be triggered by medical problems. Since as you get older, you tend to have more medical needs, and therefore I would have thought... That they would have said that financial education could not have prevented their bankruptcy filing, and yet they were far more positive about financial education than other groups. Did any of this surprise you?
2: Um, well, let me take the second issue, and I'll let I'll let Deb take the first one on the older people. Um, we de- we defined two groups of people as being older. One was 45 to 55. Um, which is obviously sort of still in the middle, but but somewhat older than the median and then over sixty five for people who are over sixty five they have they have Medicare, so they have a safety net for their medical problems, while not perfect, is substantially larger than many Americans enjoy so it 's absolutely right that we would expect elderly people perhaps to have more illness or to have more disability to have higher prescription drug costs, but they also enjoy a larger medical safe, safety net than younger people. The other thing I'll say is that there um, have been reports, and, and there's some, some growing evidence on this, that um, older people may be less familiar with how some of the credit products widely used today work. So older people may not have had a credit card. Um, for much of their life. They have less experience with it. When they go out and get that product for the first time, they, they face a steep learning curve in figuring out how to use it. Um, or there may just be cognitive difficulties. They're, they're more likely to make late payments. They're more likely not to read the fine print, um, things like that. So it actually could cut the other way um, than for the reasons that I said.
1: And And I just want to dovetail onto Katie's a little bit about the, the 65 and over generation, um, I think to what, what may be going on, and it would be a beautiful study if someone wanted to do this, um, is that that's a generation that um, I, I believe, based on um, anecdotal evidence, um, had a, lot, a pretty high level of trust um, in their local ba- with their local bankers or in their local bankers, Um, and, um, things were, financial transactions were often done with a handshake, particularly in small communities, um, some of the examples that, that I've, I've heard, some of the stories that I've heard. And there's an existing, um, and maybe incorrect assumption that your lender, um, whether that's a mortgage lender or, or someone with your credit card company, um, is, um, sympathetic, is on your side, um. And uh, I think the relationship between lender and borrower is understood a little bit differently um, among older generations. I think they're not as critical, um, or maybe they're, Maybe I should say this differently, I think they're more trusting than they should be. And I think sometimes they get caught up in financial exchanges that um, are complex and um, are not what they expected. Um, so, so I'm, I'm wondering if that's also part of, part of the equation. Now about the gender issue, um, husbands in, in, in um, financially um, stable homes, um, that's absolutely right that it's usually um, the husbands who manage the, uh, income, manage the money. However, um, some of the sociological research has demonstrated that when finances are tight or in uh, lower-middle-class and working-class families where there's really not much money to play with, um, every dollar is spoken for before, virtually before it's earned, it's the wives who manage um, the uh, bills. So um, I was a little surprised because I expected it to be, uh, I expected to see that women um, would have said, assuming that they are, and, I, and we know from the study the wives who are actually in this group are more likely to manage the bills um was an earlier paper that I published. Um, I expected to see that females would have said that had been less likely to um, talk of the benefits because they would, I assumed, would be more familiar with the financial um, situation of the household. So I was surprised that the gender difference wasn't um, explicit. Um, I was not surprised that the person who's most familiar with the finances said, gosh, I just don't think this would have helped us at all because I know the causes um, behind our bankruptcy. But I was a little bit surprised that I didn't see that, that we didn't see the the gender difference because the wives typically are the ones who manage the bills in the lower income households or those who are financially distressed.
2: One possibility is that um, some of that effect that we would expect based on the wives being the ones who are sort of in the trenches with the debt collectors trying to trying to make ends meet during the worst times, some of that effect may be offset um, by the fact that men may have more opportunity or more exposure for formal financial education. Um, so the, you know, there's sort of the, going on in the background here that we didn't measure and we do not have a good way to measure is how much financial literacy, how much financial education did people have before the course? That is kind of what was their baseline starting point and I think that's really important, missing information, as we think about how to improve the curriculum that we're offering bankrupt debtors, is that we find these really important differences based on who you are and, how, and sort of what, what your life experiences have been and what your life opportunities have been when you come into the program. So more assessment of, of the starting point um, would lead then, I think, to a, to a more refined curriculum that might be more satisfying and more effective.
0: So, are you suggesting that, based on these dramatic differences in attitude based on demographics, that the financial education course should be required for certain groups, not required for certain groups, required for everyone, but in a different form based on your race, your age, your educational attainment?
2: I think that this is Professor Porter. I think that's a really interesting um, question. I'm not sure what Dr. Thorne is even going to say on this. Um, because I think we haven't quite, you know, hammered out in our own head exactly where what the right policy conclusion is, my own view is that our study ought to at least give some pause to those who view the financial education um, mandate as just another horrible thing added by BAPSIPA, by the new bankruptcy law. Um, it is not useful for many people, um, that's true, but there is a substantial number Um, that says it helps them and some of those that think the course was helpful are sometimes groups that we might think are particularly vulnerable and we might really want to make sure that they have opportunities to improve their education. So I guess what I do know right now is I want, I think the bankruptcy system should at least offer the opportunity for education because there does seem to be, at least among some demographics, a desire Um, to to have some education and and interest. This sort of seems to be a teachable moment for at least some populations. Um, I I, I think it's hard to get from there to everybody should have to take a one-size-fits-all course, which is what we have now. I think our findings point to the potential benefits of offering people some choices and some flexibility in what kinds of things they want to learn. So if people have particular problems with medical debt, there are some specific things that we could provide them with information about, hospital charity care programs, um, health savings accounts, different kinds of insurance policies that might better suit the kinds of medical problems that they're having. Um, As opposed to right now, we really have a curriculum that I think draws an awful lot from kind of a typical high school home economics um, you know, make sure you have a budget, and, and good luck to you. Type of curriculum. But I think that is overly simplistic for the complex problems
1: that these families are dealing with. And I want to stress what Katie said. There's there's a portion of the population for whom that information is so valuable. Um, whether it's budgeting, whether it's how to read the fine print on a loan, regardless of what type of loan it is there are a lot of people who need that information and who appreciate that information, and it's valuable. And, and just like she said, that's often the most um, financially vulnerable groups. and I think we have a responsibility to provide that information to them. But for people who are more financially savvy, um, and it's just, it's along a continuum you know, of how much experience you have. And if you have more financial experience or, like uh, Katie was saying, if you have medical issues, is there, is there no way that the um, required course couldn't be tailored? And I believe it could be. Um, there could be sections that could be added for people who are in different circumstances and who need different direction and advice, if it's going to be mandated and going to be required, make it useful to um, a wider population than it appears to currently be, um, and, and tailor that a little bit. I think would be a, a better approach. Um, the, the other thing is, I'd really like to see a long-term assessment of the uh, effectiveness of it and. Uh, longitudinal study, I think, would be
0: important. Well, that, that keys into another aspect. You were both very clear in your paper that you were making absolutely no assertion that financial education courses have any real benefit to the debtors who take them. Your research was looking at their attitudes about the course rather than the efficacy of the course. What would have to be done to assess whether financial education courses are really worth the time and money that is spent on them?
2: Yeah, I think um, the way that we would ideally want to do this is you'd want to have large groups of bankruptcy filers and assign some of them to a financial education course randomly. Um, That would be the treatment group that gets the financial education course. And then you would have another large set of people who do not get the financial education course. Um, And with a large random sample in each group, you would You would assess them before, you would assess their life circumstances after. you' monitor you'd test their financial education before and at several points after the bankruptcy. So you're really looking at a large, ideally, I think, a, a large um, clinical control type of trial. I think this is the kind of study that the study I just described is the kind of study that the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection might undertake in its role um, of doing research on consumer credit issues. And um, it has an office of financial education within that bureau. That's one of the designated units. Um, And so I'm very hopeful that that bureau might help prod the thinking of the U.S. trustee program um, and of the people who do bankruptcy financial education to tap into more research, to do more research, and to develop more refined curriculums.
1: Because, there's, you know, there are a lot of people who could, who could if, if things were, were organized well and the classes were uh, tailored uh, a bit differently, could really benefit from it. If it's going to be mandated, um, make it useful. Make it really useful for them. And do the, do the longitudinal study to know what has to be changed, what's effective, what's not, um, for whom. Um, and do the... Do the footwork and make sure what you're requiring is doing its job, is doing what you expected it to do, um, and have the data to support your, support your claims.
0: In your research, you asked debtors both whether they thought a financial education course would have helped them to avoid having to file for bankruptcy and whether they thought the course would help them avoid future financial problems. And your results indicated that debtors of every demographic category were far more optimistic about the benefits of the course to assist them in the future than they were about the ability of such a course to prevent the bankruptcy they'd already filed. Why do you think that was so?
2: Well, I mean, I think that there's a real possibility that what this finding reflects is is an optimism bias. That is, people are optimistic that armed with some more education having gone through the experience of filing bankruptcy, that the same troubles they had in the past aren't going to trouble them again. Um, I I think unpacking whether or not that's an an optimistic bias or whether that's really um, a reasonable assumption about their future would require different data than we have. Um, I do think even if this is just people are feeling optimistic, um, I think that still has some value you know, we have about 2 million people, 1, about 1.6 million filings. And when you add on the, the joint filings, we have about 2 million adults who are going to come in to the bankruptcy system this year. And we talk about the fresh start a lot, um, and we talk about that having this financial component. But I think it also has a behavioral component. It also has an element of reviving the debtor's confidence, helping the debtor feel better about themselves and about their ability to to navigate the modern credit economy. So I think this optimism about the future future ability um, of financial education to help them is an important one, even if we were to ultimately learn that they were somewhat over-optimistic. I think we ought to be leaving people at the end of the grueling process of declaring bankruptcy and, go, and going through the system feeling hopeful about what they can accomplish.
1: And two, um, uh, there was uh, uh, some other research uh, that, that uh, actually I conducted on my dis- uh, with my dissertation was asking people um, why didn't they file earlier? And we followed this through on the CBP because we asked them how long did you seriously struggle with your bills before you finally filed for bankruptcy? And for some of these folks, and particularly whom I interviewed, um, they were financially just devastated. I mean, there was just virtually no way that they could recover from this. And so during these interviews, I would say, well, you know, this, this was hopeless. Why did you keep fighting this battle for two years when it was clear a long time ago you couldn't dig out from this? And when Katie talks about this sense of hope, that's, the recurrent theme was because we kept hoping that we could change things, that we could pay our bills. And I think that hopefulness is, is what, what's being reflected in that. In the future, do you think it will help you avoid financial trouble? It may well um, uh, help them, but that sense of hope is, is also a positive thing too.
0: So are you two as researchers hopeful about the future of bankruptcy financial education?
2: Well, I I guess for me, I think that the the biggest cause for optimism is the potential of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and its sort of new mandate and the new energy that's going on there to really really collaborate, to push, to shape, um, to use the bankruptcy system as a laboratory for learning some lessons about financial education. The U.S. trustee program had a lot of things they had to implement very quickly upon the new bankruptcy law being enacted. But they've had five years to do some assessment um, or to do some revision of this curriculum, and we haven't seen anything. Um, and I'm hopeful that our study might help prompt that, or at least prompt some, some discussion and, and some pressure on them to do their own research.
1: And, and I would add that I'm hopeful for the portion of the population you know, the groups who said this, this may have helped them avoid bankruptcy, I'm hopeful for them that it taught them some valuable lessons and um, gave them some useful information and it, it's a good thing for them. I don't know about the other portion of the population that I think really were in bankruptcy for, for reasons that had little or nothing to do with uh, their financial um, skills.
0: Well, we are, unfortunately, out of time. I want to thank our guests, Professor Katherine Porter and Professor Deborah Thorne, for their interesting discussion of their research paper, Debtors' Assessments of Bankruptcy Financial Education. The paper can currently be accessed at the Social Science Research Network Electronic Library at ssrn.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to browse the more than 85 podcasts on file at www.abiworld.org. This is Laura Bartel, resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. Thank you for joining us.